hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another smooth glass of amarula for the mind that being two crickets in a thorn tree i'm half of your hosts mr nicholas Lorimer, and i'm of course joined today by by gabriel krauser hello the other half of your hosts yes uh so apologies for missing a uh, episode or two i think it was one i think it's only one um it was just one uh and the reason we missed one is because gabriel made the terrible mistake of being promoted which is always a frightfully (laughs) dangerous thing to do Uh, and as a result he has a lot more work (laughs) and is uh we we had some scheduling difficulties basically um but we are now back uh to entertain and enrich or at least attempt to do those things. And uh, I believe uh, you ha- are part of, uh, because of the thing you've been promoted to is, is you're the head of campaigns now, aren't you? Or something like that. Something like that, for the, yeah. For the Institute of Race Relations, right. And you had a bit of a clever idea to talk about something, to run a little bit of a campaign. Um, so let's talk, let, why don't you tell us about why you didn't have time for the greatest podcast in the world? Uh, what, <laughs> what were you working on? <laughs> well, in a sense, I was working on my like people skills because it turns out that if you're like a journalist, then you do have to speak to people, but they're mainly strangers and you're trying to figure out what the truth is. Whereas if you are like in any kind of management or administrative capacity, you have to talk to people and sort of get everyone to work together. <laughs> now that is difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's even that hot. I just think it's like so against my nature, man. Jeez, like, it's <laughs> be like, guys, just don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. It's like what you just said is interesting. And it reminds me of when I first started joining, when I first joined the Institute, our boss, France Crenier, once said, no, that's a great, what you just said to me is very interesting, but I don't care because I want column inches. This is a factory and you must produce and it's not good enough. No, I don't really care that you've got nice ideas. That's wonderful for you. I mean, for, for you, I, you know, you're a person. I care about you. But like for the job, be very nice if those ideas were being produced into a product. So I've got to play that role a little bit, which has been interesting for me. The idea that we're trying to carry, very simple. Racism is not the problem. Not the problem. It's not the problem. So it is a problem. Of course, it's a problem. Every time someone is racist to someone else, where racism, I don't know, let's define it roughly speaking as something like doing harm to another person on the basis of the color of their skin, whether it's physical right. or emotional, or career or whatever it is. Whatever. So that's, ob- I mean, that's by definition a problem. Harm is a problem. Unjust harm. Make it more precise. It, that's implied in on the basis of their race because you, if you're harming someone on the basis of their race, then that's unjust. So it is a problem, but it's not the problem. So why is it not the problem? There's two ways of going about it. Uh, one way is sort of intellectual and pretty clever. And I think that's a lot of what we talk about, really. I think a lot of our conversations kind of talk about race, but find that, you know, racism is is sort of the veneer uh the the sort of polish or lacquer around a hobby horse that is uh is driving damaging daggers into people but where right. the hobby horse so, itself is made of something else and, right and right so it's i don't know 
corruption, socialism, something else. And then racism is, is put on top of that to give it a bit of extra zing. Yeah, and it's not that race nationalism isn't a problem. But okay, anyway, so the point is, one way to go about this is to do a root cause analysis, sit in your armchair and think about things and find that racism is not the root cause analysis problem. Right. Uh, the other way to go about this is to ask people, what do you think? And that's what the Institute of Race Relations does, does these surveys all the time, every few years. And we did one towards the end of last year and we finally got the results. And we asked people, what's the major problem? You can say two, open question. You don't know who we are. Just thousands of random South Africans of all sorts, demographically representative across the country. What do you think the problems are? Unemployment, crime, corruption. You don't even have to go through the list. Everyone knows what the list right. is. Right. Yeah. 93% of people say racism is one of the major problems. 97% do not identify racism as one of the major problems. Then you want, then you wonder, well, what's going on? So you ask people, have you personally experienced any form of racism in the last five years? 20% say yes, that's not great. Uh, it's a problem. But 80% say no. 80% say they've experienced no racism in the last five years. Right, that's quite interesting. Yeah, Considering unthinkable that, 30 years ago, unthinkable 20 years ago. Right. Um, and it's also quite interesting when you see sort of what Phil's column enters these yeah. days. <laughs> um, uh, what was it? Uh, uh, I don't know if we saw Eusebius Mackaiser, uh, who's, I don't know what we could call him, the king of racism, in a sense, in South Africa. One of its, <laughs> or the, one cheerleader, of its uh, the chief cheerleader of racism. Chief cheerleader. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so, so he was, I think, criticized by another journalist for perhaps being a little bit quick to jump on board the racism accusations against Andre Dureta, which I think are laughably transparent as a factional, you know, as a piece of ANC factional business, right? Mm. That uh, the anti-Romapause factional, the anti-Dureta factional, whatever, wants to get rid of him and start using racism as a way to do it. But Eusebius was very perturbed by this because um, I think it would, would damage his bottom line if racism wasn't the problem. Yeah, so, I mean, so what's interesting about that story to me is that Andre Dureta fired Solly, I can't remember his surname, the chief procurement officer of Air, of ESCOM. Yeah, yeah. Like then two, accused of racism, right? Two, so he, hold on. Dureta fired Solly like two months ago. Right. Then Solly says Dureta's a racist. He's just firing him because he's black and he's just, he's just sort of uh, digging into black companies that uh, are selling coal at 10 times the price and so on and so forth. Right. And the evidence immediately and universally points to this allegation of racism being false. And the mainstream media sort of carries the story. In fact, it shows little patience for Solly's accusation. It was actually uh, put down. Then cut to like a month ago, or a couple of weeks ago, um, I had this thing, which I think we talked about on a lot po our last podcast of doing a series of interviews about BE, Newsroom Africa, ENCA, right. bunch of radio shows. Yeah. And this is one of the examples that I used in some of the interviews. In some of the interviews, I didn't even have to say. I could just say, and we can see even now after coronavirus, after the new dawn, we still have, if someone gets fired or whatever from a major state-owned enterprise, then they say they were fired because of racism. And I didn't have to say it because everyone else on the panel knew what I was talking about and would complete it. And there was just, you know, this common appreciation that everyone knows what's going on here. This is like, this is an example so good that you don't have to name it. So it went through that little valley of like being a thing that was talked about to like, okay, not talked about, it's just part of common sense. And then Peter DeToy, who's the deputy chief editor at News24, 
he writes an article kind of reviving the story. I'm not sure what the news hook was of last week, but anyway, the story went up uh, saying, you know, there's this fake allegation of racism and isn't this embarrassing? And then Eusebius jumps on that. So it's just an interesting sort of reflection on how the news cycle works, that really the the biggest name journalists and whatnot, it's easier to jump in once the consensus has already been established in a way. Um, But yeah, I mean, it is one example of many where, and and the phrase root cause analysis is something that was taught to me by a guy who used to work at ESCOM, oddly enough. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's a very funny thing when you, when especially when there's an electrical fire, you have to do root cause analysis. So when the power stations aren't working, you have to do root cause analysis. And if you, if you, if you identify a problem that's not the root cause, then you almost make things worse because you go and solve that, and then everyone steps back and gets a sense of complacency. Right. And you, yeah, you also have wasted resources and you waste of time, and maybe your adjustment actually causes another problem somewhere else. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not solving the main problem, so the the thing's going to get you know, the, the crisis is going to strike again. And uh, if it's striking again when everyone thinks it's solved and when it's had a longer time to erode the basic structure, then it's even worse. So anyway, our thought is racism is not the problem is, I mean, I've got another story that which just started last week, Cornwall High, which is a, a private school in Irene, sort of close to Pretoria that two of my cousins attended, one of my aunts taught at, very, very excellent school, has been sort of, has just apologized for being racist because a black student said that seven years ago when she was in grade four, uh, she was told that her hair is messy. Uh, this is... So, I mean, I was told my hair's a screw up like literally on a daily basis when I was, for most of I my even got in, I got in trouble for that and I... Didn't get in trouble for much at school. <laughs> well, yeah. So either turns out Sicilians were super racist against white people, uh, or <laughs> no, but hold on a second. Haven't we heard this 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 story before? It's Pretoria like an old South African thing. Yeah, yeah. It, there's like a million versions of it, and sometimes there's like a, a a religious angle because it's a dreadlocks thing. You know, someone says I'm a rest Rastafarian, and you can't tell me to cut my hair. And then sometimes it's yeah, I don't know. But so the thing, it's, I mean, where, where you can tell that there is, where, where you can tell there's some clear racism is firstly that the, that the headmaster apologizes. Like he wouldn't apologize if he thought he was dealing with real adults. So 15 parents go and walk around the school in a silent protest. 15 black parents. And then the, and then the headmaster says, I'm very sorry. Our school clearly is racist. Now, I don't think that the, if the headmaster thought he was speaking to adults, that he would uh, say that on the basis of the evidence. So that you're saying presented. he's got the, the soft bigotry of low expectations. On the available evidence, I'm happy to be corrected, but on the available evidence, that seems very much to be the case. Um, and there's also racism in terms of what the parents are calling for and some of the students, like more teachers who look like me. And I just think it's a completely sick idea. Right. If I don't have children, but if I had children and one of them came back, I mean, I, I, I really want to be the no corporal punishment kind of parent because I think that's fancy. But if one of my children came back and said, I'm <laughs> irritated because my teacher is a different color skin to me. Yeah, that's that's pretty bad. That's I, I think I would immediately institute a new corporal punishment kind of attitude to... Sleeping in the shed and getting gruelled tonight yeah. <laughs> kind of punishment. Yeah. No, that is just that is just not an acceptable thing to say or think. Yeah. It's, 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 it's disgusting. It's twisted. And, 
And um, and happily, our surveys show that uh, 95% of South Africans agree. Black and white, they say. We say, hey, do you care what p- color of skin your, your, your kids' teachers are? And uh, 90, 95%, 96% say, no, we just want them to do a good job. So that's great. But the 5% who think, no, 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 my kids are black, so they must have black teachers, or my kids are white, and they must have white teachers, or my kids are Indian, and they must have Indian teachers, that 5%. Manages to do this thing at schools on a you know this school that school on a fairly regular basis of That's uh, madness. Anyway, so it gets in the way of the thing, yeah. And okay. and 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 here's why here's why our campaign matters. And so go you know if you're listening to this, uh, go to www.racismisnottheproblem.coza, or just Google racism is not the problem. And yeah, you can see the video, but. And the and the text and the reports and whatnot. But here's here's why I think it's an interesting project. I think that we have such serious problems that haven't really changed. Like sometimes we complain between you and I that the news in South Africa can feel a bit stuck, like our challenges aren't really changing. But that's because right. we're not really addressing our challenges. Like when you really start solving a problem, then you discover new aspects to that problem. And then there are interesting new stories. Like if we really started dismantling the patronage network uh, rather than one or two little scapegoats, there would be new issues that would emerge out of that. Like it would right. be interesting if you did fire thousands of redundant employees in the civil service and you did jail a thousand corrupt politicians. And this kind of thing has happened before in other countries. It's the kind of thing that could happen. When you do that, that that begins to solve the problem, but it does generate new problems and it creates interesting new stories. And like there's then there's further analysis to be done. Yeah. You know, we don't have that be because we're not addressing any of the serious problems. In right, we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Because we and and this is the thing. I so most people clearly agree that racism is not the problem until you're in the moment where someone's tells a very sad story and instead of saying but this story is limited to this case and this interesting sort of set of circumstances says this story is representative someone told me my hair is uh is wrong and that shows the whole school is a screw-up or the whole country is a screw-up right or as in june 16th i was told last year in hector peterson square everything is racist <laughs> <laughs> the show it was a great episode um so yeah. when that moment comes, most people just go along with it. And what we're trying mm. to do is say, look, you think you're alone in thinking racism is not the problem. So when someone comes and says, no, the whole problem, the big problem, the root cause analysis is racism is the problem, then you shut up and you listen to it and you think uh, that's how we need to go forward. Right. It's not the right way to think about it. The right way, the right thing to do then, it's actually at that moment that it's the most important. I mean, this question, have you personally experienced racism in the last five years? 80% say no. Every single time that I've heard that I've been on a debate with someone, a black person who says I've experienced, you know, I experience racism on a daily basis, and then science is an example, something that that Adam Adam Calatavella said on a Greek beach or whatever, you know, I don't. That's the time for 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 people to speak up and say that's nonsense, right? Because if that happens, the taste makers will stop using that line. As a distraction, as a false claim, as a false misrepresentation, it could be an accurate representation of that person's experience of that morning or yesterday or the day before, but it's not an accurate portrayal of what most South Africans are experiencing. 
anyway, there's there's a philosophical story to talk, tell about common knowledge versus individual esoteric so, beliefs, but I'm not going to get into me, that. The point is that I think that our our conversation would be there's a there's a nice there's a nice sort of line. Uh, surgeons don't believe in asepsis, but that doesn't mean they do surgery and sores. I don't think that we're going to fully. Ev I, I really believe there will always be murderers and rapists and racists. Um, but in order to have a good conversation, you need it's like surgery. You need to be in a relatively antiseptic environment. Yes. And so the conversational environment itself has to be one in which racism is not the problem. I couldn't speak to you on a daily basis if you if you just thought that I was better or worse because I'm a descendant of this bloodline and you're a descendant right. of that. Right. It just wouldn't work. And so we need to expand that conversational space where it's like, at least here and now in this conversation, anyone can say racism is not the problem because it's not the problem in this conversation. And furthermore, we have good data that it's not the root cause problem of South Africa's current challenges. It's not the thing that's currently holding us back. And furthermore, most South Africans agree and furthermore, we asked, most South Africans agree, we asked the question, are most politicians talking up racism to excuse their own failures? Most South Africans agree. Once that becomes common knowledge, once that defines the conversational space, we don't get to relax and take it easy. That's when we can begin the real work of confronting our real problems as neighbors, as fellow citizens, as fellow human beings, and actually get something done about them, rather than just sort of live in this universe of, more same, more same. Anyway, so I'm very excited right. about the project and it's got like many weeks of rollout and we promise not to, we, we promise to do such a good job of attracting your attention that we will stand a very good you, chance you, of, of getting it outside right. of the Two Crickets podcast. But right. that is should, kind of- You should hopefully hear about it without uh, without just listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah. That's but the goal you, anyway. There you see it. It's, it has been a wonderful thing to work on for a little bit and it has been very day and night and making videos and- Dealing with sort of advertising companies and billboards and all kinds so of very. You've stuff. made me. You've made me think of something which is uh, quite interesting. And if I may be permitted to digress for a moment, um, you must. Some of what is going on here surely is to do with the fact that, and uh, and you can. And it's a story as old as time. It's not even a particularly unique thought. This, but that this ability to denounce figures of authority being given to kids is definitely a bad idea because that's that's one of the uh, recurring aspects of this kind of work uh, identity politics stuff is that because there's no distinction made in qualities of accusations um, a teenager who's had a big falling out with school authorities over something uh, is is taken just as seriously as I don't know, professor at the most esteemed institution in the world making that accusation. And yeah. so I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, as as a man who's spiritually 40 years old, 60 years old, it always makes me a bit worried when the youth get empowered too much. <laughs> well, I think you and I were both like this, right? I think we were both, as high school kids, pretty precocious. And for that very reason, pretty keen on like high schoolers not having the right to vote. Yeah, like that struck me amongst my peers as a, a, a very superficial but useful litmus test of maturity. If you're a 15 year old and you're like, we should have the right to vote. My response as a 15 year old was like, dude, you are exactly the instilled <laughs> yeah. embodiment 
of why 15 year olds should not vote this is crazy. It's, it's it's a it's a little bit like that that theory of power which the only people should be who should be allowed to wield power are those who don't want it mm. <laughs> it's kind of similar <laughs> yeah it's got this funny sense of irony but it's got another connection to the race thing which i suppose is like a background theme for me which is that i think it's very important to have a kind of tolerance to racists i mean um or racialists, people who try and get kudos out of their race. Because I do think, I think it's a sort of understandable mistake. I can see how you can sustain that mistake for a while. I think it becomes intolerable once it starts harming other people and so on and so forth. But but when kids are at school and they, you know, learn some fact of history which makes their race seem amazing and then they feel a course of warm blood pumping through their veins right. their hair stand on end and we, they if there's anything we can say about teenagers is that they desperately want to belong to something yeah and so they want to belong to their race okay that's fine um and i do and the reason i like that is because i just like this philosophical distinction of like phase sortals sort of kind of philosophical term for those objects or, or kinds of things those things shall we just say that if you understand what this thing is, you understand that it stops even though it doesn't break. It stops yeah. existing even though it doesn't break. So a clock stops being a clock when it breaks. Right? So a clock is like a is a it's not a phase sortal. It's a it's a permanent sortal. I can't remember what the other term is. But a phase sortal, the paradigm the, the key example is teenager. Right? You stop being a child, you become a teenager, you stop being a teenager, you become an adult. It's not because something's broken. I mean, you can think of ways in which something is broken, but it's really the natural and healthy course of things. Definitely. Right. Where you understand this to be a phase. And I think racism, being being a racist or a racialist, like taking pride in your own race, it is like a phase. And the tragedy is that some people get stuck in this adolescent state for all their lives. Yeah. And 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 part of the mission of saying racism is not the problem is to sort of identify and expand that adult space, which, by the way, young children can be very good at occupying. Um, but to expand <laughs> this common ground where where racism really isn't the problem so that people at the start of it can just try it out. Just try it on like a new pair of shoes and see how it feels. See if it keeps your feet dry. Walk around a bit. Take them off. Go back into your old sneakers or whatever. But maybe, you know, you try it out and you like it. You're like, okay, you're embarrassed in some situation and then you go along with your race kind of narrative. Then you try it out again. You try to, maybe that actually becomes the the the, the stuff you move around in after a while. And you then you phase out of like a juvenile experience and you phase into something more interesting and profound. On which note, I would like to talk about <laughs> the juvenile experience of Shelby Steele. Yes, uh, much anticipated. You did say last uh, week that we were going to, you were going to do last a reading episode. from Shelby. Sorry, sorry, last episode, not last week, uh, that you were going to do a reading from uh, uh, Shelby Steele to illustrate perhaps to our readers why you think he's such a, uh, I don't know, what, what what's the phrase the kids use these days? Uh, big brain. <laughs> he's big brain. <laughs> he is. So, so just to refresh, okay, so this is a reading. I'm going to be reading a page in a bit. It'll be five minutes. So just sit back. Right. Sit back. Get, get the, that glass of Amarula or your non-alcoholic substitute. Yeah. And, uh, and enjoy. the context, this is, this is the 60s, I think, in America. 
and it's definitely like a, a pretty racist America. Um, and Shelby Steele is, yeah, he's looking back on that time. He writes this in 1989 uh, when he's an adult and has very much undergone some 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 maturation in his thinking. And and part of the reason that I wanted to flag this was because we talked about data. I mean, right now, the racism is not a problem thing. It's largely being grounded in data, these sort of surveys, GDP analysis and so on. And I think one of the things that the woke guys talked about is lived experience. And I think people get put off by that. And, uh, well, people who are suspicious of wokeness, they, they think that there's no room for talk of lived experience. Well, if that's what you think, then listen to this. When I was 14, the mother of a white teammate on the YMCA swimming team would, in a nice but insistent way, correct my grammar when I lapsed into the black English I'd grown up speaking in the neighborhood. She would require that my verbs and pronouns agree, that I put the G on my ings, that I would say that instead of dat. She absolutely abhorred double negatives, and her face would screw up in pain at the sound of one. But her corrections also tapped my racial vulnerability. I felt racial shame at this white woman's fastidious concern with my language. It was not as though she was saying that the black part of me was not good enough, would not do. Sorry, it was as though she was saying the black part of me was not good enough, would not do. And this is where my denial went to work. I never admitted to the racial shame I felt. Instead, I decided that she was being racist and humiliating me out of some perverse need to feel better about herself at my expense. And this is the real problem with denial. To deny one reality, my feelings of racial shame. We always create another reality to cover over the real one. So there are always two very dangerous elements in any denial. Recomposition and distortion. We recompose new feelings to cover over those that threaten us. And these new feelings always distort the threatening situation into something different than what it really is. Rather than feel racial shame, I recomposed the situation into a tableau of racial victimization in which this woman openly scorned my race. This recomposition gave me some peace for a time because it allowed me to externalize my shame, to transform it into anger at her. But of course, my vulnerability was still at work. And one day when her eyes rolled at some rather glaring lapse, I decided it was time to do something. I told her son, I thought she didn't like black people and was taking it out on me. A few days later, she marched into the YMCA rec room, took me away from a ping pong game and sat me down in a corner. It was the late 50s when certain women painted their faces as though they were canvases and onto this woman's face were painted a pair of violently red Valentine's lips, two perfectly arched eyebrows and a black beauty mark beside her mouth. It was the distraction of this mask, my wonderment at it, that allowed me to keep my equilibrium. She told me about herself, that she had grown up poor, had never finished high school, and would never become more than a secretary. 
She said she didn't give a good goddamn about my race, but that if I wanted to do more than sweat my life away in a steel mill, I better learn to speak correctly. As she continued to talk, I was shocked to realize that my comment had genuinely hurt her and that her motive in correcting my English had been no more than simple human kindness. If she had been black, I might have seen this more easily. But she was white. And this fact alone set off a very specific response pattern in which vulnerability to racial shame was the trigger, denial and recomposition the reaction, and a distorted view of the situation the result. This was the sequence by which I converted kindness into harassment and my racial shame into her racism. I believe this sequence is one of the most unrecognized yet potent forces in contemporary black life. Mm. So that's just an extract of the essay, and it is called The Recomposed Self. I think that... That is, a, that is what I think the kids would call a spicy, uh, a spicy passage. <laughs> Dude, if you read, I, I, you know, I, for legal reasons, I think... I'm not really allowed to just read the whole essay in this podcast. <laughs> but if you read that essay, it's uh, it's very it's very personal and yet very considered, and so has this resonant quality. Mm-hmm. And and you know, part of what's interesting is that I do think that he he's he's sort of giving a personal account of how the esteem economy works, of right this process and the the recomposed self really is about this process of turning disses against oneself into evidence of one's own grandeur yeah and that process that's, that's a good way of putting it yeah itself leading into well a, a, a negative spiral a perverse feedback loop something that is is in his way impossible to tell without heart because it because it is sore. It's heart sore. It's heart sore to 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 pull the the theory of ego protection into the reality of 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 badly abused and misspent lives. And I and I admire his ability to to walk a very delicate tightrope. You know, confessions, especially in Europe have a, a sort of a, a Christian tradition um, that is not altogether salutary. Uh, fancy writers and philosophers would write their confessions often to humble brag, to sort of say how wonderful they are because they have uh, this ability to, you know, look into their own well, hearts and see these terrible things. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a sort of false modesty kind of thing. Um, there's, there's actually, it reminds me also of uh, interesting ways that uh, fascist regimes work in Asia. And I'm not sure how much the Communist Party of China still does this, but I know that the fascist Japanese government did this. Is the process of re-education and the process of uh, turning, basically turning you from a dissident into a loyal cadre involved you writing lengthy confessions and essays explaining your your malice uh your, your, why you were you know why mm. you were so disreputable and evil um and it was used as a very effective form of control and actually there's a number of interesting cases in 
Japanese history where in the 30s you would have a dissident, usually a sort of a socialist or, or maybe someone who's a bit of a liberal, um, writing about how uh, they, they get arrested, they get imprisoned, they get pushed through some sort of re-education camp. And then they are forced to write public essays mm. confessing to their sins. Mm. And what's funny is how often, even after the regime collapses, those people continue to hold those beliefs very mm. aggressively. Mm. It's mm. very strange. Mm. Um, and, and I think it does that that psychological trick that they've that those regimes figured out is definitely at play in, in some of the ways that we talk about race and racism. Um, is that, you know, you if know, you can and get there's another confess, angle. Exactly. It's, it, it's like there's this psychological trick where somehow people seem to have figured out that as hard as it is to say, I'm sorry, it's even harder to say, I'm sorry that I said I was sorry. That was, <laughs> yes. that was a mistake. Like our, our, our lizard brains just balk at that level of uh, yeah, self-reflection. Once is hard enough, let's not do it again. <laughs> so if you can get someone to say, I'm sorry, I'm this or whatever, then they're stuck, then they're stuck with playing that game. They can't phase out, out of it very easily. So, so I, you know, I think Shelby Steele kind of walks this line of avoiding uh, a, a, a sort of garish, self-aggrandizing tone through his confessions. And and the way that he avoids it is really by pointing to the interesting thing about it not being its idiosyncrasy, but precisely being the common features that it shares with so many other experiences that we might inform ourselves how better to conduct things like teaching kids or relating with one another at work or over dinner yeah or in families so it, it he he really is offering himself on the altar of example like there's something to this this is a teachable moment is the old phrase rather than using some example to really show something fancy about himself and that humility i suppose is something you'll have to take on my advice it's it's what i see in in all of the essays that I've read so far, film that I've watched, um, it is a it is a sort of a, a subtle kind of literary and reading, um, and yeah, I, 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 it's it's a recommendation to check it out for yourself to see if you find that. Of course, because of course, people who aren't well disposed towards him would read that same passage and see nothing but seeking the approval of white masters or whatever other foul racist terms they they use. Yeah, it's uh, an ugly thought, but an. A, a, precisely accurate one yeah but so you know in terms of this this thing that you mentioned about the the ways that kind of show trials and uh, explicit confessions can can drive people to commit themselves to a kind of uh, narrative that makes them useful idiots for a political regime i think that I think that that's also a nice way of thinking about the, why the racism is not the problem campaign movement. Let's call it what what it aspires to be. Why it's such a, a good idea is that right now, I think one of the most perverse ways of getting kudos is to advertise to the world that you are a confessed racist. Yes. I confess oh, oh. I'm terrible and uh, and I've subjugated myself to this reform program and all will yeah. come out well. And at high schools, we see wonderful. this especially, these high schools that hire 
consulting firms to come and tell them that they're racist. Right. And it's it's usually referred to by a term that you do not like, uh, which is virtue signaling. Because in yeah. this case, it's vice signaling. <laughs> exactly. And that's exactly part of why I don't like the term is because people can signal their virtue by signaling their vice, right? Or rather signal right. their superior social standing by saying, I'm the kind of person that can afford to say that I'm a racist. I'm the kind of institution yeah, I can, that can afford to say it. I can hire someone to officially produce a report that I'm racist and still come through without a scratch. Because I'm already so far ahead that in in showing my weakness, I can also show how it's very good to overcome. And there's something about this which I find truly appealing. I really am attracted to the – I do think that the basic idea of classical liberalism was best put by, oddly enough, uh, a victim of the gulag, Solzhenitsyn, who said the, 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 the line that runs through good and evil doesn't divide nations or peoples or races or genders or anything or classes – it really cuts through every single human heart. So there is something profoundly important about conceding that uh, that one is a fallen angel, mm-hmm. that one is not perfect, that one makes mistakes. And of course, it's often going to be an easier thing to do the more room one has to maneuver. But the active exploitation of that feature, and in particular with regards to race, in order to signal that one is really on the inside channel of the sort of uh, main power project running the country is is just it's just perverse, and it, uh, it 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 seems to me like if people were more ready to say, "Look, racism is not the problem here," then when someone says I'm a confessed racist, you could have a more healthy response to that instead of being like, "Oh, well done for admitting it." You could be like, "Holy moly, that's terrible, actually." What the hell? Why are you telling us this? What are, shouldn't you be doing something about that? Yeah, and if you're telling us this, like what you first need to experience is a is like a bucket of shame. Shame yeah. on you for for being a racist. Figure your I stuff out. Another... How can we help you? Rather than like, oh, well done. <laughs> you 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 put it on the. You've appointed four permanent staff because you're a racist and. Uh, and their job is to tell you that you're a racist for now until forevermore. And this is like, you know, very good. This is progress. It is just it's such a, a bit, perverse. It's a like, right. It's a bit like a medieval king uh, having clergy around him to tell him how sinful he is every day. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and get a round of applause every time they do. Oh, this king. Yeah, look, is, he's wearing his wearing his, uh, his, 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 his goat hair shirt today uh, to show how pious and holy he is. Oh. Um, which was a thing that would occasionally happen in the Middle Ages, because uh, of course a goat hair shirt is extremely uncomfortable to wear. Uh, but you only wear it in public maybe one one or two days, and then you can go back to, you know, your your, your fancy silk. Uh, I think there's another aspect to this that you're forgetting that drives people to do this, and that's it's great for Instagram because you can every day do another post about how you're overcoming your racism. And so you're in that it produces endless social media content for any influencer out there. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah. it's 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 as as someone who produces content daily, I can say that that if I was one of those people who was very concerned about their Instagram career and and uh, producing repeatable content, um, admitting some great fa- uh, vice in yourself is a great way to generate content. <laughs> And then something to work on. 
And I suppose yeah. that's also part of what's interesting about about uh, Mr. Steele is that so this essay, like each one of these essays starts with a different story, right? And there's the connection between a story and a major idea. And the major idea here is the recomposition of the self. But the story is this personal confession. What really is, in a way, a beautiful thing, which in caricature and in general were kind of maligning, this confession that he was racist, that he was judging this white woman as being a harasser when really she was just being kind because of the color of her skin. But does he make a meal out of it? No. I read I read this poignant section, but he moves on to unpack, you know, a, a, a very deep and broad analysis. And then this is just one essay of many, and they all have their own quality and their own thing. And this is written in 1989, and it's now 2021. And it's not like, I mean, his contributions between now and then haven't been sort of focused on this particular moment. It's not like he's made a career out of this thing. And I think <laughs> that's, and that is, that does feel different to, that anyway, that just feels like an important difference. That somehow mm -hmm. part of what perturbs me about the high schools in South Africa that advertise themselves as being racist, you know, please come here because we're racist, and that pro and the, and the fact that we can admit that proves that we're really the best. <laughs> right. Um, a, a line which, by the way, was taken by Princeton University, my alma mater, which w is consistently ranked the best undergraduate university in America in the English-speaking world. They said in 2020, we're racist. Uh, we found that we're systemically racist, so we have to take down the Woodrow Wilson's name from the buildings and so on and so forth. This podcast, we've talked often about what a terrible person Woodrow Wilson was in many respects. Uh, anyway, the, the you know, this this is an advertising ploy that is for serious. Yeah. And exactly the way that you can tell when it's for serious in terms of advertising, but not for serious in terms of making things right, is when it seems impossible to find a, a proper endpoint. Yes. So, so for Shelby Steele, the endpoint is like the end of this little anecdote, which serves on the altar of example for a for a for a broader analysis of American geopolitics at the moment, or right. socioeconomic politics, and for. Princeton and the high schools, it's like, what is the end point? There, there isn't really one in mind. It feels like an advert has to continue forever because it's not, it's, 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 it doesn't have a phase built into itself. It's, it's like a, it's like a right. never-ending thing that you have to just confess and confess and confess, and that's what's great. I can't I can't remember who, but someone and this was other someone made this comment on an American podcast I listened to. I think it was uh, people from Commentary Magazine. Anyway, they made this point that workness is a bit like, as as many people said, it's a it's a kind of like a religious movement. But what's interesting is it's like Christianity, but there's no salvation. You just confess sins forever and ever and ever. But there's also no punishment either. There's no sort of real hellfire or anything it's just confession and rending of your cloth uh, you know for over and over again which is kind of weird because <laughs> normally people aren't willing to sign on to something unless there's like some sort of obvious um what's the word i'm looking for uh, release uh and yet there's an interesting thing that i see all the time in in kind of uh, work circles and stuff is people will say uh, you see these, uh, it's this whole idea in critical race theory. What's it? White convergence, interest conversion, con, converge. What's interest it? convergence theory. 
That's the thing, yes. That white people will only be anti-racist so far as it helps them. Um, and this this theme is repeated all the time by kind of work people. They'll say, uh, you see, you just want to be called, you white people who say that you're racist, you just want to be called one of the good ones. Mm. So it's interesting to me that they spend so much time on this point um, because it kind of seems like the sort of thing that should you know, drive people away from your movement, right? And yet it doesn't. And yet it makes it even more seductive. And yet it still works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think part of that might be, there, there is something about interest, interest convergence theory that seems right to me. One way of putting it is like this. <laughs> um, that enlightened, uh, enlightened selfishness and enlightened altruism converge yes uh and and this is a long-standing thought well, it's the uh, magic of capitalism in a sense isn't it right that's one expression of it uh yeah and there uh, look there are others that 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 touch more on the intangible goods the esteem type goods the sort of aesthetic goods in life but it does it, it does turn out to be the case that you you can at least make a very plausible argument that in the long run and if I take into account, you know, children and grandchildren, my own children and grandchildren or some group that I'm connected to that's going to survive my death, a long run that is longer than just my life. In the long run, it's it's not just better to be good in the moral sense. It's also greater to be good in the kind of selfish sense of, yeah. of like wanting greatness. So it's good and great to be good is a kind of thought. Our, in, our interest to converge in. Uh, so capitalism, one thought, democracy is another thought, you know, the sort of more even distribution of power so that people have some shared status as citizens vis-a-vis uh, -vis the power machinations that coordinate violence in their environment. Uh, you know, this it's a it's a funny idea if you if you compare the alternative being you're the king like, oh, doesn't it sound better that I'm the king? This sort of enlightenment argument is that no, in the long run, it really is better for you to be forced to be good in ways. It would be, you know, to share power in ways that mean your own will, whims and caprices don't dictate terms. Which, and by definition, your wills and caprices dictating terms in the short run means you're getting your way. So the point of democracy right. is that you will really get your way in the long run if you don't always get your way in the short run, if you can lose in this civilized and rules bound way. Yes. yes, yes. I, I think that's a right idea. I think convergence theory in that sense is tapping into one of the roots of the grand classically liberal tradition. What's strange about it is then turning the units of competition into races rather than individuals and thinking, right. you know, what, what really happens is that races only do things when their interests converge. Part of what's weird about that is it's not clear to me that races often do much. And when they do, it's usually, it's only because races being empty in and of themselves. It's, there's nothing to being white or being black other than just how you look. But so when races as a group do things, it's because there's a race nationalist project. And wherever there's been a race <laughs> right. nationalist project, it's been a complete screw up. So that's right. one reason to think it's bad. Another reason to think it's bad is that if you look at the cases where you might think of a race doing something without a race nationalist project. For example, the abolition of slavery in the UK in the early 19th century. 
then it turns out that people, you know, it, you know, because it's 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 a government where everyone who can vote is white, and the slavery that they're abolishing is mo mostly touching on on black people uh, that are enslaved. But then when you look into the rhetoric, how people were actually talking, both in publicly and in private, in their diaries, in their letters to each other and so on, you find that doing this as white people is just not really a very common idea. They think of doing this as Christians or as Brits, and sometimes in kind of ugly ways. You know, let's prove that Christians are better than Muslims because Muslims have slaves. Let's prove that Brits are better <laughs> than Americans have lots of slaves and the Russians are full of serfs and these are very backward ways of going about things. Our economy is much better than we should end slavery. Sometimes in really compassionate and sincere and good ways. But whatever the ways were, I mean, in terms of whether you like them or not, what they weren't was explicitly racialist. It wasn't right. the case that people were saying, you know, whites ought to know better than abiding by slavery. That just wasn't an argument. Right. So... Uh, even in that kind of case, you find that it's something that might superficially resemble a kind of racialist project. It's not a racialist project. So races don't do things together uh, un unless they're doing things badly, unless people are getting together according to race and then doing things badly. So it's hard to think of the entrance convergence thesis as lining up with that because the entrance convergence thesis is precisely that things get better when these interests converge. And that's just not the kind of thing that you find across races. Uh, it's also it, it also it also creates a sort of problem of okay so if this is true what does that actually sorry, mean sorry. for all it's of not, us? It's, it's not the kind of thing you find within races. Of course, it's the kind of thing you right. find across races because our interests converge across races. It's not the kind of thing. Sorry, right, right, carry right. on, Nick. I just no, no, spoke. no, no. Fair enough. Um, yeah, it's 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 sort of okay. So if White people can never atone and can never and ne and are never altruistic at all, and this is a morally bad thing, right? Which is what interest convergence theory sort of claims. What's the point in ever having a conversation ever? What's the point in anti-racism activation, uh, activism rather? There isn't, because <laughs> you know people are damned by the color of their skin, which is what's so which is one of the things that's so sick about about this whole ideology is that there really is no solution. It makes solution except the most hideous forms of race nationalism, like racial separation, states, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the answer, if you follow this stuff to the end of the road, it's not about, you know, fighting for equality like they sometimes mask themselves as, as, as fighting for. Um, it's about racial segregation. And, and, and yeah, we've already said Shelby Steele's very good because he talks about integration the other side of segregation and integration just reading these texts from the late 80s made me realize how weird it is that integration is so missing from the conversation today it's just not i feel like if one can get the google ngram uh sort of data analysis of words that appear in south african news articles and so on and so forth integration is uh is just not used very much in the in in, yes. in that sense I do think that uh, your point's exactly right. The premise of the sort of work project has it that uh, people only work together across races, in particular white people only help out people who aren't white when it's in their narrow self-interest. 
because they're they're damned morally from the beginning that makes it seem that that makes the whole project seem sort of uh self contradictory like there can't be a project of actually spreading this awareness and this allegiance if that's one of your premises but that of course doesn't matter if your project is not about doing something but rather about performing something Right. And, and about uh, deconstructing something. And this is one of the reasons I really despise a lot of this postmodernist stuff is because it's all about talking about problems and sort of deconstructing issues and just sort of sitting back and saying, society is rubbish. Capitalism is terrible. And then you say, OK, what's the solution? And then they say, well, our theory doesn't really give us any. So we're just going to go back to the Marxist well of the 60s. <laughs> of the 1860s. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it is a funny thing. It's a funny thing. But uh, yeah, at least it's, yeah, I don't know. Another vain effort, Nick. I think I'm, yes. I think I'm drawing a bow around what might just amount to being another vain effort to try to understand the position of people who sort of remain proud or ashamed of their phenotype. And I, yeah, I think that, I think it's a good project. And I I think Shelby Steele is really good at pursuing that project. And I think that, I think that what is, what my final thoughts on this are just that the most devastating thing about the text to me is that it's produced in 89, the year I was born. And it feels like it was written yesterday. If if anything, Uh, it feels... I feel like there was a gap in the middle there where it wasn't so. Exactly, exactly. So I, applying, I, but I, we've come my, back. I myself adolesced in that gap. We both adolesced in that gap, but it's come mm-hmm. back, and that does give that does just give the one the 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 stark reminder. There's just something about that date, which is such a hard reminder that winning is not an everlasting thing, right? So you have the conversation. You convince someone racism is not the problem here. Problem is this and that, and we need to solve this and that. You've got a hole in your wall. Let's fix the hole. You've got a, a sort of plug that doesn't turn on. Let's let's get the power flowing. Yo, you can win that conversation and then lose it again the next day. Our colleague Becky has this problem with uh, sometimes when he argues with his friends and relatives about um, expropriation without compensation. They'll say something like, the problem is we, as in and this we, they're speaking racially, black people don't own the land. And then he'll say like, okay, well, here's some reasons why that's probably not the real cause for poverty and destitution in South Africa. And he'll go through a whole conversation and he'll sort of swing them around. And then when they get to the end of the conversation, they've agreed with him on lots of points. They say, okay, you know, you make a lot of good points, but the problem you see, the thing that we're getting away from here is that it's the land. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with everything you said, this. but it's the land. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> I think, I think I, we so, did an episode so about that, about the, yes, uh, yeah, we did. The, the sort of these three dimensional objects that are all inside of each other. You get out of the one Russian doll into the bigger one, and then the bigger one into the big one. And then you figure out you're in the smallest one. Yeah. Horrible paradox again. Because you go, yeah. Yeah. You know, there was a thing that I was reminded of in our group chat today, uh, our work group chat on WhatsApp, where we often uh, discuss many great and wonderful things. So 
just going back to this point of how there's sort of no solutions or anything in in kind of work identity stuff, critical race theory. Um, it reminds me. It, it it feels to me very nihilistic in a sense, right? There's a yeah. there's an element there of just you know. Like uh, yeah. There's no, yeah, you see where I'm going. It's not. It's not. It's not. I wouldn't call it pure nihilism. But there's it definitely a sort of, believes. It de- yeah, it definitely believes in things that don't exist. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which is the opposite. <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, I, no, I do I was, hear you. I do hear you. I was reminded of my favorite scene in the movie The Big Lebowski, where the crazed Vietnam War veteran Walter he's complaining about. Uh, Guys, there had a run in with some some dodgy dudes in a boat, and he refers to them. Yeah, they're German guys, uh, sort of who are menacing people. And he's talking to his friends, and he's like, "These damn Nazis." And (laughs) his uh, his friend, the Big Lebowski, says, "No man, they weren't Nazis. They were nihilists." He goes, "Nihilists," and then he sort of there's like a moment of like horror and revulsion in his stomach and he kind of looks around and he goes oh, say what you want about the tenets of national socialism at least it's an ethos I kind of encapsulates I feel about these kind of nihilistic ideolo- ideologies these sort of yeah so... right so I mean so I, I suppose one of the ideas there is that once you implement CRT, it becomes national socialism. It becomes practical. <laughs> you start getting the trains to run on time to do very terrible things. And that's... I, I don't even know of, about that. I don't, I don't think critical the race theorists could get the trains to run on time. <laughs> sure they could. I, I suppose, Well, I suppose they could in, in my usage of the... T- you see, I don't see critical race theory... I really don't see critical race theory as being a particularly new thing. It just strikes me as a continuation of Dubois and national socialism and Mussolini and what is going on in Japan. And it's just, it's, it's, it's all the core tenets are more or less the same that you can tell who's right and who's wrong by how they look, that there's one kind of person that deserves the good stuff and another kind of person who deserves the punishment by how they look. And let's move forward on that basis. It's a, it's a, it's a simple and old idea in that sense, I suppose there's some new language about it, but I do find myself I, often being the guy who pushes, and and this is and this is precisely not because I want to say that critical race theory is the same as the Nazis. This theory, it's the same theory underlying apartheid, which is a terrible yeah, thing, a but distinct to the Nazis in terms of how terrible it was. Right. There's there's certainly a grayscale, uh, different ways of, of you know tallest and shortest dwarfs of of fascism. But also, there's a difference between theory and practice. So one can sort of espouse the theory largely in the esteem sphere, where I think it can be playful and, and even funny. You know, I can definitely imagine a play about a bunch of racists being very entertaining and informative. I can imagine a society, a, a, a dinner party which gets kind of racy, which is maybe a bit irritating, but bearable. Uh, whereas when it descends from conversation into uh, power and property relations, it becomes unbearable, but that distinction between theory and practice is a real one, and uh, and I wouldn't want to hang any of the academics of Marxism for the sins of Stalin or Lenin. No, certainly would rather debate them and try and persuade them and so on and so forth. And I feel the same about right. 
critical race theory. So in that sense, I suppose it seems nihilistic insofar as it seems so much like a call to action. And yet the best version of it is one which leads immediately into doing nothing. Because that's the right. best you could possibly do under the assumption I guess, our environment I guess, today that the way to judge people is by how they look. Right. That's much cleverer than what I was going to say, which is basically then it has constant need to deconstruct. It has a sort of destructive nihilistic attitude towards the universe in that it's it's this kind of postmodern thing of just being obsessed, obsessed with uh, there being nothing but cynicism behind every every door. Don't you feel like in this sense, the progressives are the ultra conservatives in the American way of looking at things like the, the ultimate progressives in South Africa are the EFF or, or black first land first. And what they want is like a sort of hundred meter square garden for everyone to plant pumpkins and sing sort of ancient <laughs> Zulu melodies. Right. They're yeah. really um, conservative. They're probably, probably, well, probably. That, that, that's actually, it's funny you say that because. The way I view uh, yeah, I do agree they share these tenets with, with you know, the sort of horrid racial projects of the past. But I also see a lot of the way that it's done in practice rather than in theory as being very simply a reinstitution of a kind of the way that politics used to work around the world, which is corruption being the norm, payoffs being the norm. Right. It's It's special interest groups and political organizers getting their slice of the pie it's patronage networks all the way down and you can see that for example in the way that hollywood deals with uh, identity politics people say oscar's so white uh, there's too many, there's not enough black people in films films are not telling black stories they say these kind of things then what's the response well uh, consultants are hired lists are drawn up of how many black people have to be on every single project and so what you get is this kind of padding of the whole system where yeah. you just put in these like busy work. Uh, yeah. These kind of busy work people to pay them off so that they don't cause political problems for you. Um and there's a whole industry to be made out of that. And that's also why so many people get attracted to it. It's because, mm. you know, mm. you can become a what do they call them? A, a diversity consultant or something and make a right. lot of money from telling people that they're racist. <laughs> so it's like once you, okay, so before you centralize violence, you have lots of different competing gangs and it's just usual if you're running a business to have to pay bribes to this gang and that gang for protection yeah, money and exactly. occasionally to have to get into a bloody war or battle, not war battle. Then you get the states going and you have interstate competition, but then the bomb atomic bombs come along so there's no international warfare between developed states so that hard violent side is gone and instead you have these power blocks competing for the vote and for sort of patronage money and that kind of thing and if you're not careful the same kind of mobster ethic takes over but there was this interregnum where that was not the defining feature of politics in the uk or the us or south africa especially not yet we had something very interesting going on and and it feels like part of what part of what was lost was ordinary citizens sort of guarding their immediate environment, sort of seeing a yeah. fire next door and calling the fire brigade, as it were, rather right. than just sitting quietly and, and watching their neighbor get called a the racist when they're not. Right, right. And, um, and instead of calling the fire, the firebird, the fire brigade, uh, most people did just sit quietly and be like, well, someone else will call it out or they'll put the fire out themselves or whatever. We don't have to rally. We don't have to say, 
it's crazy to call the clerk a white supremacist because, ah, you know, he's fine. He won his Nobel Prize and whatever. This is just an example that comes to mind because I think most sort of white burdened supremacist woke Easters really want to be the clerk. Uh, and sort of have a job and then get replaced by a black person who's even better. That's like the sort of ultimate esteem <laughs> win. But they will never say anything nice about it. But only after their because, pension is secured. Yeah, but they'll never say a nice thing about their actual role model, which is another way of telling. You can tell <laughs> that your life is a screw-up if you, if you can't admit your role model is F.W. de Klerk. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like people do live these strange... Ah, oh, it's a it's a it's it's a strange game to play, and uh, maybe 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 the problem you're identifying is 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 this is the sort of the the scariest point that that we have screwed up, and that if we being just you know a, a sort of some of a lot of banal moments across a lot of lives that we we didn't quite push for what we deserve that the duties of citizenship were were the, the rights of citizenship were taken for granted and the duties were not discharged i think i think that is a very big problem today is that citizenship is not taken seriously we sat idly by and so you see this regress and it just strikes me as a a, a cold hard fact that if you let it slip for long enough then it becomes the case that the only way to get things right again is by dealing with things getting much worse, by resorting to the kinds of, ultimately by violence. You know, at some stage, things do kind of lead to war, right? The worst case scenario right. is, is, is violence. There are stages in between, though, in, you know, proper further ramifications. Let me put it this way. Of poverty, which is what we've seen, like sitting idly by has has just led to millions of more yeah, people things, like, jobs. In the things have to get things have to get bad enough to the point where people have to be active citizens again to protect themselves. But that doesn't it just doesn't seem good enough to me because it because of this impression that I have that 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 point only comes when we're violent. Mm. Like we're not, not when when. <laughs> Like the non-racialist army. I really, I, <laughs> well, there never back, need to be back. the non-racialist army of, <laughs> you know, that just, that just sounds, un, to me, that sounds unacceptable. That is like, which is to, like not even an option. Like let, let's plan so that that's not even an option. Let's act like that's not an option because it's not an option. We can't no. wait for that to happen because realistically, I don't even think it could happen. We need to no. win the debate. No. We need to, Get our act together way before that point. No, dude, I by agree. the time um, people are hacking it out, like, what, yeah, man. Or, or, I, I will say it's that wait. my family and I, you know, you know, being a lot of us having at some point worked for the DA or still working for the DA, we used to occasionally joke about forming uh, what we would call Dupla, the DA People's Liberation Army. <laughs> 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 Which I'm not sure what it would look like. <laughs> Oh my word! No, but I'm not confident that it would win. <laughs> <laughs> I think I even made a like a a, a joke badge for Doppler before. <laughs> I'll see if I can find it on my computer somewhere. <laughs> Put it in the show notes or something. 
Mm. Anyway, we're going over time now, so we must call it to a close. Recommendations. Well, let me just say about Dupler. I, you know, I think that the, the, the non-racialist army is not unthinkable because obviously a lot of political movements find it very enticing to think about the militant arm in theory or in practice. Uh, I think the non-racialist army is not unthinkable because our politics is less serious. But precisely because our politics takes life more seriously. Mm. And that, yeah, that can sound smug. Like, oh, well, good for us. So let's just chill out. No, dude, we got it. <laughs> we got to not, we got to like enjoy ourselves and have a good time and like love life. Dude, we also really got to get our act together. Mm. Mm. Okay. Recommendations. Do you have a recommend? Yeah. I recommend that you recommend first. <laughs> As per usual. Um, all right. I shall say that I don't know if I've recommended this before, but I recommend it again. Go on YouTube, search for a channel called Illinois Energy Prof. Um, I think his highest, his most watched video is Chernobyl, the worst nuclear accident. And he's a really cool, restrained, chilled university professor who just talks basically using a, he's got a white, a sort of a whiteboard marker thing set up. And he just talks about various things to do with energy for the most part. Um, and it's just really informative and really great to watch. Uh, he talks, you know, about, he's, he's a big proponent of nuclear power. And he just talks about why, how it works, how you can make things safer, how you can avoid problems, why problems happened when they did, stuff like that. I find his videos enlightening and enjoyable. Um, and I can highly recommend it to anyone else. That's Illinois Energy Prof on YouTube. I like it. I like it. Okay, my recommendation is just what you'd guess it to be. Racism is not the problem. <laughs> and But I'm not just recommending that you go to the website. I, what I'm really recommending, here's my real recommendation. It's a claim. We claim that it's true at a root cause analysis level of South Africa's political economy. You could disagree. But figure out where it's true. Where do you know that to be true? It's, 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 it's one of the wonderful things about English, which I became more sensitive to after studying Russian, is the definitive article. Articles in general, but the definitive article in particular. The. Racism is not the problem. Well, I think Latin or Polish has one either, actually. Interestingly. Anyway, carry on. Yeah. So some languages don't have it, and then you can sort of make some kinds of contextual claims uh, harder to make, exactly like this one. This is the kind of claim that must be true in some context. So figure out that context. Is it is that claim true in your family? Is that claim true in your friendship circles? One or the other, or all of them, or none? Is that claim true on Antarctica, or at the bottom of the ocean, or in the stratosphere, or on Mars? Is that claim true at the UN? Is that claim true in Washington, D.C.? Is that claim true in Pretoria? Where is it true? Where is it not true? Is it true in your neighborhood? I think it's, is it true in your church or your mosque or your synagogue? If it is true, identify that truth. Notice it. 
And if it's if it's not true, Hull's teeth. Notice that. Do something about that. If it is true, don't be ashamed to admit it. It's not a, it's really not a bad thing. If racism is not the problem, it's a it's it's true by definition that you've identified a good thing. And in a world of bad news, yeah, maybe if you just taking your time, think about a bit of good news. Maybe that's a bit of good news. <laughs> in the context no, that you always, can find. That's always good advice. Anyway, uh, I think that's all the time we have for uh, for today. We're only over by 13 or 14 minutes. <laughs> so I hope you enjoyed. And we'll see you uh, hopefully next week. The plan is for next week. But anyway, keep the flag lovely flying. <laughs> Grrrr, <laughs> grrrr,